Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn, welcoming you back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Time and Antiquity in American Empire, Roma Redux, by Dr. Mark Story, a book about two empires, America and Rome, and as Story puts it, the forms of time we create when we think about these empires together. Ranging from the 18th century to the present day through novels, journalism, film, and photography, time and antiquity in American empire reconfigures our understanding of how cultural and political life has generated an analogy between Roman antiquity and the imperial U.S. state, both to justify and perpetuate it and to resist and critique it. The book takes in a wide scope from theories of historical time and imperial culture through the twin political pillars of American empire, republicanism and slavery, to the popular literary genres that have reimagined America's and Rome's sometimes strange orbit, specifically Christian fiction, travel writing and science fiction. Through this conjunction of literary history, classical reception studies, and the philosophy of history, story builds a more fundamental inquiry into how we imagine both our politics and ourselves within historical time. He outlines a new relationship between text and context and between history and culture. Offering a fresh reckoning with the historicist protocols of literary study, this book suggests that recognizing the shape of history we step into when we analogize with the past is also a way of thinking about how we have read and how we might yet read. Mark Story is Associate Professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literary Studies at the University of Warwick. He was a founding member of the British Association of 19th Century Americanists and has held fellowships at the University of Virginia and the Houghton Library at Harvard. His research and teaching interests lie broadly in American literature and culture, and he is currently working on projects in two areas, critical theory and historical time and horror and the Gothic. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Story to talk about his book, Time and Antiquity in American Empire, Roma Redux. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much, Carrie. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. I guess there's a long long answer and short answer to that. Um, I mean, I was one of those kids who read a lot of books. Uh, and then I sort of discovered American novels when I was a teenager, uh, which seemed a long way from um, my American, my uh, English provincial life. Uh, so that was interesting me. And so I went to university, did English, had a couple of great teachers of American literature there. And then I ended up um, at the University of Nottingham in the UK doing my PhD, which was and still is a kind of um, a major centre for American studies in the UK, uh, but I think there's, you know, the sort of, I guess the other thing which is an important, maybe part of the longer version, I'd have to include is the fact that I was an undergraduate student in the early two thousands specifically, 
And I guess that was me coming to a sort of political consciousness, if you like, between 9-11 and the Iraq war and the decade that followed that and the, and the crash of 2008. And so I think there is a sort of generation of American studies scholars who are now you know, a decade on from their graduate work, who all of that stuff was very important and very influential on how we looked at the US. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, that that's another reason that kind of I ended up doing what I do. Interesting. So tell us then how this particular book came to be. Well, I'd written about um, 19th century American literature as my PhD in my previous book, so that was my period, the 19th century. And then I sort of developed this fascination with P.T. Barnum. So I ended up writing something about him. But in the process of doing that, I discovered, really just kind of literally discovered on the internet, this old poster for one of Barnum's, um, he called it the Great Roman Hippodrome, which is something he put on at Madison Square Gardens in New York in the 1870s. And it was one of his kind of amazingly ambitious shows and it included in it this full-scale indoor chariot race. And this just seemed sort of incredible to me, and I was interested in Barnum anyway. But, and then I guess this is the Iraq War again. Around the same time as that, I read an article, and I found some footage on YouTube of how US troops had been staging makeshift chariot races in Iraq during the war as a kind of friendly contest, you know, amongst themselves. And I think it was these two things that sort of emerged at the same time or I discovered at the same time and how they came together. So it was New York in the 1870s and Baghdad in the 2000s. And in the middle of it, this reconstruction of ancient Roman spectacle. And so I, I suppose I started to wonder why Rome should persist like this. And then how, how would you describe the join between the 1870s and the 2000s. So I'd found a topic, um, but then I also found this sort of philosophical question about how we think about and try to map history. Uh, and that really set me off on this. Right. So set the stage for us here. You open your book with a photograph of American troops, exactly what you're talking about. They're in Fallujah in 2004, and they're holding a Romanesque chariot race, complete with impromptu costumes, armor, cardboard, well, cardboard armor, probably something a little more real for the weapons. And, and then they've got these horses and carts. And so the layers of significance in this photograph, as you've kind of alluded to, um, serves as an entry point into the ideas that you wanted to explore in your book, namely the complicated relationships between the United States, ancient Rome, notions of empire, and distant moments in time. So there's a density of theoretical ideas here. Can you take us through it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. That 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 photograph, that's something I discovered later on. There's a photographer, Lucian Reed, who had, who had been out there and he took these great photos of, of these chariot races. And I, I suppose the photograph prompted, in, in part for me, the first thought about the, the idea of the analogy that becomes the sort of book's governing trope, I suppose, or its method as well. So the historical analogy that, that was seemed to be present in this photograph that draws American empire and Roman empire into this same image. And, and, and I suppose that, that made me think about them together, as it were, simultaneously, how American empire and Roman, and Roman empire might be simultaneous with each other in this image. And then from that, I suppose that it asks two other things, which is what this book tries to bring together which are the politics of imperialism, but also how we can't express um, the historical temporality of that simultane simultaneous moment um, in conventional ways, as, as if they were two distant points or moments in time. So I, I think for all of the reasons you know I've said before, it, it seemed like this was such a perfect image to crystallise what I was trying to say and the argument that I then go on to try to make. So let's discuss the status of the United States of America as a political entity or as a cultural idea. 
basically as an empire. You explain that you don't want to engage in the debate about whether it is or isn't, and this can be a bit of a touchy subject in some circles, but to some degree, your book proceeds from an, from an acceptance of this idea. So what's at stake here? Well, like you say, um, a, touch, a touchy subject indeed. I mean, when you wade into the subject of American empire, you do inevitably invoke a debate. Um, I mean, I think for me, I start from the work of historians, political scientists, cultural commentators. Uh, th- this is a vast area of inquiry uh, around the history of the U.S., and the need for the US to have a kind of imperial historiography. Um, and I didn't want this book to become uh, an, another compendium of imperial crimes. And I think other people have done that in really interesting ways and talked about that in, in, in ways that I don't. But yes, I do take it as a given that the US nation state has been and is imperial by nature right from the start. And I think this is both a case as much as what we could call more definable colonial style imperialism, something, you know, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines, so on. I mean, Daniel Imavar's book, recent book, How to Hide an Empire is great on this. But also uh, imperial in the, in the sense of operating as a sovereign power in the world, whether that's westward expansion in the 19th century and the genocide of indigenous people, or US spheres of influence in the Caribbean and South America and Africa and so on, or the US as the guarantor and policeman of the capitalist world system. So, you know, for instance, I treat slavery in this book as in part an imperial activity, which of course it is. So how, I guess it was less to do with how we name what America is or does which is still a contentious issue, but it was me. It was me following a long and deep history of critical thought, uh, insisting that empire is still the best word to describe what whatever that kind of amorphous idea of U.S. power is. So, I also want to ask you about the role of literature in this discussion. You write that literary culture should remain a central object of interest in imperial politics because American literature is a self-conscious body of work with a close sense of the imperial conditions that bring it into being. And secondly, because those imperial conditions have themselves been largely structured by narrative forms. So I think you're saying that narratives that invoke the Roman era are often used quite simply as propaganda, perhaps as the method of instantiating and legitimizing American America as empire. Uh, do I understand your claims here? Yes, I think so. Uh, I say that American literary culture, and I mean, I as when I say a, a literary culture, I define that quite broadly in sort of narrative culture. So I talk about films and photography as well. Is on on one hand steeped in the particular political imperial contexts in which it comes into being, and it is one place in which where in which that logic registers and archives itself. But I'm also interested that American empire itself has and is already a, a sort of narrative form, that it operates through narratives, forms of representation, uh, aesthetics and stories, if you like, as much as it does through direct military and political action. I mean, empires have always done this, of course, the British empire, uh, perhaps most of all. So I think what I always want to insist, and this book does, is that literature or narrative culture, whatever we want to call it, is not simply some sort of after effect of politics, which comes into being subsequently in order to represent it, but that it is a place in which thoughts, ideologies start to take shape and become thinkable which then legitimate and propel politics. So you can't, you can't extract, as it were, one from the other. I think that's, the, that's part of the point here. And it also makes it extremely relevant then to analyse that literature that's doing that work. Exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, as I say, it both sort of archives that logic and that history, as well as being the place where 
um, politics and history first starts to sort of crystallize and take take shape. Right. So next, uh, I should ask you to clarify what we even mean by the Roman Empire in this discussion, because you explained that this isn't as straightforward as it may initially seem. In addition to the fact that it was a geopolitical entity spanning a thousand years and as much as two and a half million square miles, it has also come to represent a range of ideas about political ideologies, social structures, governance, perhaps any number of things, and some of them a little self-contradictory as well. Mm. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, when we we talk, we tend to talk about ancient Rome, uh, and I mean, I say we as a sort of you know, in the popular sense, we tend to talk about it as if it were a given thing that we can point to. This 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 notion, when of course, you know, in the historical reality, it's far too variable and huge, and exists over far too long a time to summarize in in a sort of single image or a single idea. I suppose that that's why this is a book about classical reception in one sense, or at least engaged in that academic field, because I'm less interested in American, in sorry, in ancient Roman history as such, you know, as, as it might be reconstructed by classicists. And I'm more interested in how ancient Rome um, exists as a kind of idea and a storehouse of images and cliches and political inspiration, and how that materializes in the modern world, and I think that's a different emphasis. And you know, this is something uh, that goes on a great deal in classical reception studies. But that's that's ancient Rome figured rather differently than 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 reconstructing it as a sort of historical entity, right? So I want to ask you too about your methodology for putting the different time periods in conversation with each other. You explain you don't order your examples chronologically, as if in order um, to present or in order to avoid some kind of implicit stance of progressive history uh, and standard classical reception. So I wonder if you could explain what you mean by, uh, and I'll quote you here: resisting an imperial logic of chronological progress and a conventional literary historical logic of an antiquity received in the present yeah so i think this goes back to the point maybe i was making before about how i was trying to think through how we connect those those many american moments of roman analogy that i discuss in this book in a way that chronological history just doesn't really seem to explain or contain it or allow us to to connect them and I suppose in that respect, it seemed wrong to write about history or imagine history as a sort of interconnected network, or I borrow from Walter Benjamin, a kind of idea of co- the constellation, the constellation of points, but then structure the book as if it were one long linear chronology from the 18th century to the present. So structurally, then there's a quite resistance here to two things. Uh, and one is me borrowing from post-colonial thinking about how imperial politics has often been posited as, or, or has often posited an idea of history as a form of liberal progress, so that societies and peoples are deemed to be backwards, and therefore they can legitimately bought into the uh, the civilizing orbit, as it were, of the more advanced colonial power. And that's something that post-colonial critics have talked about a lot. But I also then borrow from, as I say, classical reception studies and work that resists the idea of the classical tradition, and I use that in inverted commas, as a kind of given body of knowledge that exists prior to us and that we then receive, either accurately or inaccurately, in the present. So both of those conventional narratives, if you like, they both spatialize history as if it were a line, a kind of timeline, right, a chron- chronological one. Um, but that way of spatializing it has often been used as a handmaiden for imperial power, that way of thinking about history. So my point is to bring together uh, post-colonial thinking and classical reception studies and think about uh, philosophies of history in the point where those two things meet. Okay, so let's talk about um, 
notions of republic. Your first chapter examines the influence of the ideas of Roman Empire as they influenced the early American uh, Republican thought, and that's Republican with a small r. You argue that while classical history became a series of parables about the virtues of certain kinds of statehood, it also seeded into U.S. formation and imperial logic that undermined the trajectory of American utopian futurity, which uh, I think it's really interesting that those two things would be opposed. So tell us, uh, tell us what you mean by this. Yeah, that's interesting hearing yourself quoted back. You realize how you should have rewritten those sentences. But Oh, no, um, you think I'm quoting you because I just thought I couldn't put it in better words myself. <laughs> well, <so. laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Um, yeah, I think the first two the first two chapters I I sort of I, and I talk about this in the book they're sort of twins of of, of each other um, because the point I make and you know critic like um, Andy Doolan I, I sort of defer to has made this point very extensively in recent years in very in very interesting ways is that you can't extract American Republican thought and like you say I'm using a small a small R there from the apparent contradictions of, of Republicanism which are empire and slavery. And because Roman political and legal thought had such a profound impact on the formation of the US, its DNA, if you like, is really inextricable from it. So I bring in, um, I bring in Hannah Arendt here, who makes the point in her book on revolution. Um, and I bring in J.G.A. Pocock in another sort of classic book, The Machiavellian Moment. But I also use um, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri's uh, massively influential book, Empire. And they trace the formation of US Republican thought in the 18th century to, at least in one sense, the um, ancient Greek historian Polybius, who we know greatly influenced the framers of the Constitution. And Hart and Negri then take that on to their own description of American hegemony after World War II. So I guess this is returning to the analogy again. There is already an analogy with Rome at the very conception of the US itself, of US sovereignty, of US statehood. And that analogy and the imperial contradictions it seeded, I think really put pay to any idealized notion of a more utopian idea of the US Republican experiment. And so then you demonstrate how these themes appear in works by American novelists and you discuss, uh, so I'm going to give the list because uh, you cover quite a few novelists here and I would invite you to um, discuss all of them or some at more length than others or whatever you think uh, makes the most sense to convey this idea. But uh, you mentioned here Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia, John Williams' Augustus, Upton Sinclair's Roman Holiday, Henry Adams' autobiography, Education, as well as works by Henry James and Nathaniel Hawthorne. So why did you select these? Yeah, well, I mean, as you can tell, I talk about a lot of writers in the book, but it's still far from an exhaustive survey of American sure. references to Rome. So, I mean, yes, I picked these people out partly because they they seem to offer particularly rich or extensive or politically engaged um, works of fiction or, or writing with, with the questions that I was tackling. And so there are some obvious canonical figures. I mean, you couldn't talk about America's relationship to Rome without talking about Henry James. And really, that's a sort of book in itself. But I do I do talk about James. But also, people like Upton Sinclair, who you mentioned, I talk about in this chapter, who's a, who's a very well-known writer in, in some ways, The Jungle, um, is a kind of famous um, book of his. But the book I discuss, Roman Holiday, is really almost completely forgotten now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of fascinating novel, and it's a very strange novel. It's about this um, rich, very conservative kind of nativist guy who has a car accident and wakes up in ancient Rome. Or it, it seems to be maybe a dream he's having while he's in a coma, although that's never entirely clear in the book. And there is lots of speculation as the novel goes on about history folding into the present and how history repeats itself, um, how it's never passed but still exists somewhere out there in the universe. Now, what, I think what makes this 
novel really interesting, certainly interesting to things I'm saying in this book. It comes out in the early 1930s, right when Sinclair and his wife, Mary, are exploring an interest in telepathy. But it's also when Sinclair is friends with Albert Einstein. And not everybody realizes this, but um, the Sinclairs and Einstein were very good friends. Einstein came to stay with them in California. And, and by this point, Einstein is well known for his theory of relativity. So you've got telepathy as a sort of psychological notion of collapsing space between distant points. And then Einsteinian relativity as a challenge to notions of fixed time. And Upton Sinclair, in, in a way, sort of brings them together in this novel about an American waking up in ancient Rome. And there's th- that, that kind of confluence of ideas of that moment, yet also thinking about history in a much broader and, and stranger way, that seemed to me, I think it's a, it's a novel that's uh, worth revisiting. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I love the connection to Einstein there and this kind of postmodern fiddling with our conception of time. Mm. If we stay on the topic of the historical foundations of the United States, then in some of these ideas, we can't escape um, the situation of slavery. Uh, Ancient Greek Uh, Ancient Greece and Rome have also had a role to play in America's notions of itself with regards to slavery. On the one hand, there were those in antebellum America who deployed the Roman analogy to defend slavery. And then on the other hand, we have African-Americans themselves who've engaged in their own classical reception, often as a means of resistance. So tell us about all the things that are going on here. Yeah, it's it's another huge topic to tackle in one chapter. Um, and I'm very much indebted here to a, a sort of vibrant field of classics. Um, it's usually called black classicism. Uh, and those people who have, have worked on um, the appropriations and uses of classical history, classical literature by black Americans. And there's a, there's a, re- a really fascinating sort of field, subfield, if you like, of classics that does this. But also I'm, I'm engaging with work in temporality and time studies that think about race and history and the particular inflection that race brings to theories of historical time. Historical time not being a kind of neutral idea, but that, you know, that is inflected in some ways by these embodied or identity positions. And like you say, ancient Rome had a, a very powerful role to play in the imagination of um, the antebellum South and pro-slavery thinkers. Uh, And I talk about Louisa McCord um, just as one example in this book. But again, um, as an analogy, right? So I think antebellum South and pro-slavery, using the analogy with Rome as a way to legitimate the present. But there is also, and this is one thing I tried to tease out in this chapter particularly, a very strong tradition of radical thinking that calls on antiquity and brings antiquity into the present as a way of thinking about abolitionist and anti-racist causes. Uh, and really the chapter is sort of thinking as really more about that particular history uh, of, of kind of anti-imperial politics and writing. Okay, and so the authors uh, whose works engage with these ideas that you name here, uh, you discuss Toni Morrison, William Demby, Ralph Ellison, Howard Fast, W.E.B. Du Bois, 
Sutton E. Griggs, Robert Montgomery Byrd, Charles Brockton Brown, and Phyllis Wheatley. Right again, was a, <laughs> a long list, um, and they they all they all do appear. I mean, it's well known that people like uh, Tony Morrison and Du Bois had classical training at university, and they were steeped in those references. And their work is very highly literate in its classical referencing. And so there is there is a sort of a body there, you know, and I, again, I draw on some of that that work. Um, and, the, and both of those writers have ri- written about that um, explicitly in their own work and lives. But I, I think one figure that came to be really significant in this book was Spartacus, um, most famous perhaps to us from the Kubrick film, uh, who was a second century BC. He was a slave under the Roman Empire. And um, he's well known for leading a slave uprising, which is known as the Third Servile War. And of course, he's become a kind of byword for righteous rebellion and slave revolt. And he has a reception history really of his own. But I discuss in this chapter how he is appropriated in the American context, both by a writer like Howard Fast who wrote the novel that the film was based on and sets him as a set Spartacus as a sort of neo-Marxist uh, or proto-Marxist, I should say, revolutionary figure, but also in the Caribbean by the leader of another slave revolt in Haiti in the 1790s, Toussaint Louverture, who is referred to at the time as the black Spartacus. So it's another analogy right, already going on in that kind of radical history. So this figure from ancient Rome, uh, the figure of Spartacus, seems to leap up at these various moments into the present, not to, on this occasion, solidify America's Roman self-aggrandizement, but to be a a figure of radical um, anti-imperial struggle and, if you like, a kind of unfinished revolutionary who is invoked in the present in order to sort of revive some of that uh, that revolutionary power. And I talk about Spartacus a great deal. It's interesting how often he crops up. Yeah, that is interesting. So the second section of your book is organized uh, according to popular American genres. So let's start with what you refer to as Christian fiction. And you begin, perhaps surprisingly, by recalling what we might call, the, or what some have called, the torture porn of Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. So we're kind of taking a, a left turn here and exploring the connection between its themes. And as you were alluding to before, this period of the U.S.'s um, uh, following 9-11, and in this context, we're specifically looking at their use of torture programs themselves in that kind of uh, context. Mm. So tell us, first of all, how you classify Christian fiction, and then how these narratives demonstrate a particular dimension of America's relationship to Rome. Sure. I mean, in, in terms of the Passion of the Christ, uh, I do start the chapter with that. And I mean, it's a, a, a kind of interesting film for all sorts of reasons again people people don't perhaps realize now that the the the, the film studies term torture porn which is sometimes applied to a sort of trait of a very extreme horror movies of the 2000s um in the original article where this is this term is is given its name um the passion of the christ is is in there and it's sort of cited as an example of this new very visceral violent cinema um so it's it is it's a it's an unusual film and i think um I relate it in, in some ways to some of those those contexts that you describe. Uh, I suppose the second part of this book shifts to these three popular genres, like you say. Um, but I guess Christian fiction as a term is a bit more uh, amorphous, maybe, and less accepted than uh, the other two chapters on travel writing and science fiction as kind of genre labels. It's less, less well um, theorized, maybe. I think what I really mean here is historical fiction about Christ and the establishment of Christianity in the later part of the Roman Empire. That's that's what this sort of encapsulates. And any fiction which tackles Christ's life does so, of course, within the context of Roman imperial power. So that interested me, but, but obviously what this brings together is ancient Rome with one of the central pillars of US imperial power, 
which has been, has often been, an alliance with religious, specifically Christian, justification. Um, the notion of manifest destiny through the 19th century, and, and indeed afterwards, after all, is sort of where religion and imperialism really join together in American history. But it's a common idea. You, know, you see George W. Bush referring to the idea of a crusade in the Middle East and so on. So here I want I suppose I wanted to think about the how the encircling frames of religion and imperial politics um, and the way American historical novelists have often brought together Roman imperial spectacle and Christian moral righteousness into popular fiction. And so the specific authors you examine here include Lou Wallace, uh, particularly his novel Ben-Hur, which is the, mm. you know, the inspiration for the later film with Charlton Heston, uh, as well as Gore Vidal and William Ware. Yes. So, I mean, Gore, I mean Gore, just to pick on Gore Vidal, he really could have had a chapter to himself in this book. And I think there are there are, few, there are very few American writers who have so consistently brought together um, a kind of deep knowledge of the ancient world and a great deal of reading in the ancient world with a very politically alert critique of American empire. And, and I guess in some ways Vidal unexpectedly became the sort of patron saint of this book as I was writing it. Um, I mean, he even writes an early draft of the of the film Ben Hur. So you know, he's kind of he, in, in in curious ways he gets everywhere. Um, but I discuss, I talk about his novel Julian, which is from nineteen sixty, which is about the last pagan Roman emperor who tried to stem the climb of Christianity. But I I do that against the against Vidal's status as a gay man, who really uses that novel. And in a rather different way, um, his script for the notorious film Caligula, slightly later on, um, to revel not just in a pre-Christian world, but one where conventional forms of uh, what we could call heteronormative sexuality uh, have yet to be established. Um, so he's, he's writing during the Cold War, which is important to remember, when ideas of American masculinity and white Christianity have become a, a powerful ideological compound. Um, and his anti-imperial politics is, I think, bound up as much in um, those forms of, of identity politics as they are in, in um, a, a kind of conventional critique of American empire. Um, he's a very unfashionable writer these days. And there are some probably some good reasons for that. But I think he's also a bit overlooked and, and I write about him here. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the next genre you analyze is that of travel narratives, uh, in which Americans write of their visits to ancient ruins in particular. So here you are most concerned with the kind of conspicuous privilege enjoyed by the kind of authors who have the means to experience Rome at their leisure, and how, uh, from their perspective, um, their visits to Rome become more like, uh, and to use your words, timeless sites of philosophical introspection. So you call this kind of dehistoricizing aesthetic appropriation. I like that term too. Uh, so again, before we get to the specific text that you look at, tell us how this genre coalesced in your mind as revealing a crucial dimension of imperialism generally and America's relationship with Rome more specifically. Mm. Yeah, I think if the if the previous chapter was about representations of the ancient past, a kind of historical fiction about the ancient past, then this one is when I'm trying to think about the present, Americans abroad in Italy, especially, um, and their accounts in particular of the remnants and ruins of that ancient past. So there's sort of confrontation with the vestiges of antiquity, if you, if you want to think of it like that. And as you say, the kind of way in which that seems to induce a certain Naval gazing, liberal subjectivity, introspective subjectivity. But tra I suppose travel writing's place really in imperial culture is something we know well. Um, Mary Louise Pratt's book, Imperial Eyes, 
uh, is very influential in this and in a sort of related way, Edward Said in Orientalism. I've already sort of pointed to the way travel writing has re- has often been um, a way of um, coming to the coming to the power of um, imperial forms of politics uh, and been in league with it. So I think that that was obviously very influential. Um, and this chapter uses some of that critical background to think about the Roman ruin in particular, and what ruins come to signify in touristic accounts of Italy. And they have a rich history, the ruin as a figure, again, through Benjamin um, Freud's famous image of ruined Rome in Civilization, Its Discontents, uh, through to some of the more sort of recent work in post-colonial studies. Uh, and Anne-Laura Stoller's work is very important for me there, where she talks about ruins as a kind of recursion of what she calls imperial duress, so how imperial power remains even after its material presence has fallen into ruin. Uh, and I think travel writing and Americans writing about Roman ruins really brings a sort of interesting transnational and transhistorical account to this idea of the present. Right. So the authors you examine here include William Dean Howells and Mark Twain, Eleanor Clark and Margaret Fuller. Yeah, so... I mean, Margaret Fuller's, you know, quite a, quite a well-known American in, in 19th century Italy. She had quite the time of it in Rome during the mid-19th mid century and, and is there um, at some really politically um, contentious moments. And she writes these some amazing articles and letters about it that I talk about. I guess one of the lesser-known people I discuss in this book is Eleanor Clark. And Eleanor Clark travels a lot through Europe in the immediate post-war post-World War II, I should say, period. And from it, she writes this very poetic evocation of her time in Italy, a book called Rome and a Villa. And the villa she's referring to is Hadrian's Villa, and she has a long chapter in the middle about Hadrian's Villa. But it's interesting because Clark is in Rome at the same time that the US is directly interfering with Italian elections. The CIA uh, basically rig the 1948 Italian elections. And she's there at that moment, but she's also there, of course, in those years, surrounded by the new ruins of the recently defeated fascist state. And Mussolini, of course, was one of the great analogizers with ancient Roman imperial power. He copies it. He imagines the new fascist Italy as a kind of new Roman empire. So, again, in this one place at this one particular time, you have an American writer thinking about the strange convergences of historical time and imperialism and thinking through politics and subjectivity at these sites of Roman ruin. So the last genre you explore is my personal favorite. It's what I research, uh, science fiction, or SF for the broader term for speculative fiction. And you explain that this is an important genre for this discussion because of the ways the disparate periods of ancient Rome and the technologically enhanced future share a sort of conceptual ground with contemporary hegemonic uh, expansionist America, despite their separation by time. And then, of course, there's a lot of fun things we can do with time in science fiction, um, with the time travel or time bending things. So it so sort of opens up a landscape with uh, the concept of time in this genre as well. So can you tease apart some of these ideas for us? Yeah, well, hopefully hopefully it's obvious that um, I've moved from, you know, Christian fiction in, in that first part, which is about the ancient past, and then travel writing is sort of about witnesses to the present. And then, of course, we arrive at science fiction or SF, which ends the book, uh, in the future, maybe, or at least in sort of speculative histories. Um, and so I guess here I'm interested in thinking about time um, in the way that SF demands. Uh, and it becomes another way of countering forms, potentially it becomes another way of countering forms of imperial temporality, of chronology and teleology and so on. So I'm interested in sort of SF's um, temporal imagination, really, and how it seemed to me a sort of mirror image in some ways of thinking about classical reception, the classical world as a, as a sort of imagined um, entity that we receive in the, in the present and then the future as another sort of imagined entity and that they come together. So they seem to be sort of mirror images in interesting ways. 
And it is amazing how often ancient Rome crops up in American SF. Um, even that classic, which I talk about, the 1970s film Westworld, um, directed by Michael Crichton, now more well-known as a TV series, of course. but uh, and, and that has at its heart the, the, these, these three worlds in Westworld, which includes Roman world. Uh, and that film ends up in, in Roman world with a cowboy walking around Pompeii. So you have these two, these two worlds of the American imperial imagination, the Wild West and ancient Rome, that are sort of impossibly fused together in this huge resort for rich people. So um, here I'm talking about how the ancient past and the future fuse together as ways of legitimating or defamiliarizing uh, the political present um, and obviously capitalism uh, and thinking about US hegemony and, and post-war world uh, becomes particularly important there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that episode that you refer to in, in the old version of the Westworld is just such a a perfect snapshot of everything you're trying to talk about in Absolutely. this chapter. Yeah. Um, so turning to the authors for this section, you look at Isaac Asimov, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Samuel R. Delaney. Yeah, so, well, it's a well-known anecdote in, in classic science fiction circles, I think, that um, Isaac Asimov based at the Foundation series, which he begins in the late 1940s, um, which is kind of sometimes cited, you know, one of the great science fiction cycles of novels. He bases that on a reading of Edward Gibbons's classic work of um, scholarship, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which Gibbons starts publishing in the 1770s. So um, that seemed to me, you know, such a perfect, again, the perfect entry point of thinking about past and future um, and the massive extensions of the future, which Asimov talks about. But I guess if the I suppose if the ruin was the trope that that I run through the previous chapter here, I'm interested in the figure of the barbarian, um, who is a sort of remnant of a past or a destructive outsider that threatens, uh, you know, the imagined purity of the civilized centre. And Asimov talks a lot about barbarians in his series of novels. And Edgar Rice Burroughs, who I talk about here earlier in the 20th century, basically builds a career on fantasies of the barbarian figure. I'm thinking about Tarzan, of course. Um, but, the, but the barbarian as a, as a historical figure has also been one um, against which to imagine certain ideas of racial purity and, again, imperial justification. And it still is, in some ways, um, a, a figure which is evoked. Um, in geopolitical discourse for those reasons, the, the sort of other at the edges of empire or within the walls um, that can be conjured as an antagonist. So anyway, these the way ancient figures and images migrate to imaginative ideas about alternate and future worlds is really interesting to me. And that seemed to be a particular thing that was going on in these in these writers in some very interesting and quite complex ways. So perhaps the million-dollar question implicit in these comparisons between the U.S. and Rome is whether the American empire is following Rome's decline and fall. So if I could end on that question, what are your thoughts on this? Can you do some predicting for us? No. Right, well, <laughs> yes. Um, God. I mean, I began, so I began writing this book um, years before Donald Trump came to power, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't on the horizon. And I sent off the book to the publisher literally days after he lost the election, about three or four days afterwards. So that presence obviously does loom very large here. And I do talk about Trump on various occasions. I think what Trump and the Trump presidency induced was a great deal of discussion about the end of American empire. And one of the things I talk about in, in, the, in the very final moment of the book is these kind of hand-wringing um, editorials in various places about the end of American empire and comparing it to the end of the Roman empire and, and everything else. I don't know. I mean, we are almost certainly living through a long historical shift in which American power is on the wane. I mean, I you know, I'm not the first, of course, to say that. I've a lot well known in some ways. Um, and 
I mean, Biden is, is, is more traditionally like a 20th century American liberal, perhaps less isolationist. So maybe, maybe we'll see a resurgence of it, uh, I guess, in the lesson. One of the things I try to emphasize in the book is that the past is never really past. Um, and we should be wary of narratives of decline and fall. So maybe that's the lesson to take from Rome. Oh, that's interesting. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Uh, what what would be the uh, error in applying that kind of a narrative to Rome, for example? Well, I suppose we're talking about the idea of, again, Rome as a sort of given entity and that teleologically moves from uh, republic to empire to this sort of fallen image. Um, it, it It doesn't really sort of end in some you know triumphant moment there isn't there isn't a date that you can point to or a, 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 a war which you can point to and say this was the end um, things don't really end like that they tend to dissipate and take new forms uh, we can talk about the Holy Roman Empire you know if you want to go into that kind of history uh, so I think uh, you know if we if we're thinking about America and we're analogizing with America then um, the notion that American power is, is is just kind of on a gradual decline. Is, is probably wrong. Um, but whether American power looks like and operates like it has done through this kind of period that we're familiar with, which might be the post-World War II moment and that the establishment of, of American hegemony through that period, I think it's unlikely to continue in that way. Right. Uh, and okay. uh, what, what, what form it takes next, who knows? Right. Okay. Well, Mark, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, before we go, though, tell us what you're currently working on. Yeah, thanks. Well, uh, aside from all of the um, the tumult of, of teaching life at, in, in UK universities at the moment, uh, research-wise, a couple of things. Um, I'm working on an essay that's drawing out some of the theoretical implications of, of this book um, and is a kind of springboard from that. I'm interested in um, methodology in literary studies and historicism and the history that we sort of posit in order to think about historicism. So uh, a kind of a, a, an essay, I think, on on that, on method and theory. Um, but also this summer with my colleague at Warwick, Stephen Shapiro, we're editing together um, a book which takes me into one of, into my sort of other interests. Uh, so we're adding to the, the very long-running Cambridge Companion series with uh, the Cambridge Companion to American Horror, which uh, we teach a course together on on horror and Gothic culture in America. Um, and we've got some great essays together. So that's a lot of fun to work on. Um, and that's a kind of another thing that I'm pursuing some, some things in the future as well. Excellent. Another area in which your interests kind of overlap with mine. Um, great. Well, thanks again so much for being on the show today. I really, really enjoyed your book. Uh, it touches on a lot of my own research interests. And so I was really glad to find it. It popped up in one of my Google alerts for, for um, you know, the sorts of topics that I'm interested in. So I was really, really glad to have a chance to get you on the show and chat with you about it in person. Well, that's great. Thank you, Kate. It's been, it's been a, great, a lot of fun to talk about it. Thanks very much. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.